All right, everybody, this is Tom Salemia, Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to be talking with Kurt Hagstrom. He is the Chief Commercial Officer of Synchron, which is one of those cool neural implant companies you've been reading about in all the press. Good news for you. Not only can you hear from Synchron today, from Kurt Hagstrom today, but he'll be at Device Talks West, which is happening on October 18th and 19th in Santa Clara. Kurt's going to give, be, be giving a presentation. Uh, Synchron is one of the many neurotech companies we'll have there. And uh, Kurt will be giving a presentation. You'll be able to uh, hear directly from him on a much more technical level than he will be giving today. Today, we'll keep it at a higher level. But uh, more important, you'll be able to connect with him, ask him questions, and talk with many others in the neurotech industry. So I hope you'll join us at Device Talks West. We're not just focusing on neurotech. We'll be talking about vascular, neurovascular, surgical robotics, diabetes, AI. We got the, the whole landscape covered. So I hope you'll join us at Device Talks West again, October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Go to devicetalks.com to register. If you want to save yourself a step, go to West dot device talks.com and that'll take you right to the page where you can see the agenda the speaker lists and everything else my boston accent just came out speaker lists uh so yes please join us at device talks west and uh, i'll actually be in california next week if you're getting this episode uh before tuesday i'll be at the medtech vision conference if you're there please say hello i would love to uh to meet you and catch up on what you're doing all right, without any further delay, let's get this podcast episode started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. I see you in the new, the fancy new home office there. Stepping, oh, yeah. Moving on up there. It's more like uh, got got the family moved into a new home this summer, you know, like with uh, grown kids, you know, yeah, that, that little little 50s rambler we had in St. Louis Park wasn't, uh, wasn't doing it for <laughs> us anymore, so. Kids keep growing. All right. Well, yeah, let's, uh, yeah. we're going to uh, hit upon the news of the week. Not good news, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But uh, it's a story that... Uh, that you're continuing to cover. Uh, this is involving Philip's partial settlement uh, of uh, of some of the yeah. actions associated to their to their CPAP machine. So, Chris, well, yeah. what is? Let's just focus on a few things. What's the news of the week? What happened this week? Exactly. This is our uh, our new markers news maker of the week. I guess we'll, exactly. We'll keep on keep on going with this, but yeah, unfortunately, it's uh, not a cheery one at all. But you know, what we had this week was uh, you know Philip's announcing that they'd. Uh, Reached a uh, you know a class action uh, lawsuit settlement um, over their like massive recall involving you know CPAPs and other respiratory devices uh, you know that have uh, potential sound abatement foam degradation. There's the potential that you know the foam could get into device uh, airways. Um, they uh, you know reached a uh, a settle a settlement still subject to court approval in the U.S. District Court for. In, uh, in Western Pennsylvania, you know, in multi-district litigation, and it's for at least $479 million. But this is a partial settlement. What does this cover? All right. Uh, this is this the, exactly. I mean, this is not the end. Yeah. I mean, this is maybe, 
maybe, you know, knock on wood, hopefully the beginning of the end. But I mean, this is uh, covering, you know, lawsuits over economic loss. You know, this is like, you know, basically like you had to go get get a new CPAP, you know, get a refurbished, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you had to, you know, spend money to do this, you know, and, and, and this, and, or, you know, or, or you were like someone helping finance this, you know, and they're, they're covering that loss. And that's for at least $479 million. And then, you know, what's left is, you know, we've got all kinds of, you know, lawsuits, you know, you know, claiming, you know, injury, medical bills, whatnot. And that doesn't even, involve you know the ongoing consent decree talks that phillips has with the u.s department of justice so 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 more to come and we'll keep on covering this over on mass device and once again we should say phillips is not admitting to any wrongdoing as part of the settlement so this as you said the story will continue to unfold as uh as more suits and settlements come down the pike yeah exactly and you know it's it's it certainly is you know one of the you know most you know significant recalls that we've we've seen in the industry you know and in the past decade or so i mean just just for perspective i mean these are like millions of devices that have been uh recalled and uh and fda's you know reporting system for medical device problems you know at this point has more than uh more than a hundred thousand reports and you know um that that are you're claiming problems um you know 385 of of those reports uh you know, like uh, mention, you know, mention, mention, mention deaths, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and to be fair, that that system is very passive. These are just reports coming in. But um, but but, but yes, it's a it's a, it's a serious recall. It's pulled Phillips out of the respiratory devices, you know, market, um, you know, for for more than two years at this point. And uh, and to his credit, uh, you know, Phillips CEO Roy Jacobs, when he took over there, you know, got promoted up and took over uh, last year, um, you know, pretty quickly was, you know, saying that like overall, I mean, not admitting wrongdoing, but just overall just saying that, you know, they were, uh, you know, the, the company is like deeply sorry about about the recall. And as you've noted in the uh, wrap up article, you have uh, the, the and we'll have the link in the show notes. The, there was 10 years of, of very little news, if no news. Uh, the right. product came out in 2011. Everything was fine until 2021. And then uh, reports and complaints started to come in after that. And that's when things started to unfold. Exactly. So it'll be interesting to see how, uh, as this is delved into, if there's a there's some instance of, of whether it was just a decade-long degrading of this foam or whether it was a new type of foam or a new type of, of uh, I don't know if this has been discussed at all, but it's just interesting that there was nothing for 10 years and then suddenly uh, suddenly all of this. Um, but as as we're seeing more medical devices kind of come into being used in the home, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this is watched by medical device manu- manufacturers to ensure that they're, I guess, monitoring their systems more closely, tracking their performance, ensuring that, that they're holding together as they should because uh, as more devices yeah, exactly. get, are used at home, um, it's going to be, uh, it's going it, to, it doesn't obviously absolve these companies of any sort of responsibility just because it's in someone's house for, for five or 10 years. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that it's in a health, you know, that's not a healthcare system means that you just don't have those, those health providers right there to, you know, act, act upon the recall. And so, and so, yeah, I, I think it's changing the dynamic of how, Medical device companies uh, need to respond to safety problems. All right. And just to compare and contrast, I know you put together a list of some of the other major medical device settlements that have occurred and that are are finalized. Again, this one is different than that. But what are some of the top three or four 
that you've, again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but yeah. I'm sure you'll be working on an exhaustive list because it's an interesting topic. But uh, what are what are some of the other larger settlements uh, in medical devices? Again, saying that this is not the end of this story. This is right. the, not exactly. the final story. But Probably. yeah, when you say something like 479 million, I mean, I just I just did some quick research through Mass Device Archives. Like what what are some of the you know, big major payouts that we've you know seen in settlements, you know, and you know, over the past decade. And um, you know, I mean you saw that, you know, Bayer, you know, in twenty twenty, you know, settled, you know, ninety percent of the claims related to its uh Esure, you know, you know, birth control device for one point six billion dollars. Um you had, you know, J and J in uh twenty thirteen, you know, settling a uh you know, a, a, a good chunk of their metal, a metal hip implant uh, lawsuits for uh, $2.5 billion. Um, Stryker had its own $1 billion, you know, hip implant uh, lawsuit, uh, mm-hmm. lawsuit settlement, uh, you know, around that same time as well. And, you know, and, and earplugs, you know, they're, they're technically medical device, but I'll, I'll throw that out as well. I mean, I mean, 3M just recently like settled, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's like the, the, these like countless lawsuits over earplugs sold to the military, you know, that were potentially defective for like six billion dollars. I mean, so 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 I mean, definitely. I mean, it's not not at the same level as what you might say see in pharma, where we you know we've seen these giant opioid settlements or whatnot. But um, but you know, the med tech. Medtech industry has multi-billion-dollar lawsuit lawsuit settlements, and yep. uh, and we'll uh, we'll see how the you know all this uh, you know uh, you know Phillips uh, you know litigation plays out. Well, we'll continue to you'll continue to track this story. I'll continue to to take the credit for it. No, I'm just kidding. I would never. There you take. go. There you go. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's but it's fine. It's fine. Can, but you know, but <laughs> folks can find the I mean, coverage at, at Mass Device. We'll have a link to the the exhaustive overview yeah. you did, which you released, I think, in August exactly. of this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we um no, not in August. We we actually did this um you know a, a few months before, but um but yes, if you really you know um I mean really just to get you know, the whole blow by blow over, you know, how this unfolded, um, you know, like, like go to mass device and look up, you know, how Phillips significant respiratory devices recall unfolded. And this mm-hmm. is like a whole timeline that just goes through like all of the news around this, this recall since, uh, you know, 2021, you can really just get an idea of how, you know, how this is all, you know, played out and we'll, we'll be uh, continuing to update this, uh, this timeline. And this is, you know, and this, this is definitely not just about like sitting around you know saying like oh look at this this horrible recall they had you know at, over at phillips i mean i i think you know there are some you know good lessons that you know the industry at the whole is gonna you know hopefully be able to draw from 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 this you know and including even just what you were saying about like you know the need for better you know safety communications for you know devices used in the home absolutely all right all right well great job great insights uh, again we want to just kind of cover this to let folks know that this is big news, but it's not the end of this story. Um, no. and we'll but, but as I said, hopefully it's the end of the beginning, at least. Hopefully we'll be able to be moving on from this. Good point. All righty. Thanks, Chris Newmarker. Always happy to be here, Tom. Well, Kurt Hacksham, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm excited to share the Synchron story on the podcast, and we're going to have you at Device Talks West. You'll be giving a short presentation there and taking some questions from the audience. I'm sure it'll be a lot of interested people in the audience 
trying to understand this next phase of, uh, of neurotechnology. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, let's talk about you. Kurt, what's your uh, path into the medical device industry? Because you are truly a medical device person. You've got a great medical device pedigree. Yeah, a great question. And um, I, I guess it starts from the very beginning. You know, I went to school for biomedical engineering out of uh, Worcester Polytechnical Institute right there in Massachusetts. And uh, I wanted my son to go there, but he's oh, excellent. He's in Indiana now. He he, he <laughs> left the state. So anyway, great yeah, school. WPI. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, coming out of there, I got a job within a company that's no longer around, but maybe familiar to a lot of folks is uh, the business committee, and that spawned out of um, Tyco Healthcare sure. or Tyco itself. And I started off in you know R and D engineering because I came out of engineering school, so I started off on R and D with a great organization, really designing and developing intravascular devices, so vascular access devices. I mean, we also handled some other patient, you know, care level devices. So it was for me, you know, I kind of fell in love with the medicine, the body coming out of school. And that even spawned a little bit earlier is, you know, I, I played sports there. And as an athlete, you know, I had to rely on certain braces and I have had surgery. So from an early on, you know, uh, in my youth, I was intrigued by kind of the the interaction with physicians, the human body, and how you heal it, how you support it, and the engineering that goes behind that. And so I think really that's that's kind of the nidus of where I, I kind of fell in love with the medical devices. And then from there, you know, as I was in the big organization, I was able to see other paths within the organization from a functional standpoint that also intrigued me. Developing, designing technologies that help people, you know, at the end of the day. And then they're led, you know, a little bit in, in the commercial direction, doing sales and marketing and business development, but always actually loving the development side and novelty around developing great new technologies for people. And so for me, that was kind of the, again, kind of a path, but it was in a, a big company path, to be honest with you. But I think they, and then eventually started working with uh, Medtronic. I know you're familiar with that and the audiences, I'm sure as well. Another great company built on a mission that is there to you know keep the patient in their you know in the forefront and really center around the needs of patients and getting them up and back and, and healthy. And so for me, it's just been I guess my lifelong. You know, when I go to sleep at night and I wake up in the morning, to know that you know kind of that mission driven life, knowing that I get to go out and help people. And if I'm away from my family, I'm doing it because I'm helping people and other families and loved ones. And so. Uh, to me, it's just been my passion. That's just been, um, you know, kind of, again, it's been my career to date. So That's great. We're just going into the engineering realm right now, talking about young people in engineering. Aerospace seems to be an area of interest for students going into engineering. Do you feel like biomedical ever really got like a point where it was the hot sort of specialty where everyone wanted to go into? Because I think it should be, but I don't know if I ever obtained that status. You know, God, it's funny you say that. I I actually think, so when I did the biomedical engineering, we were the first class undergraduate at, mm. at WPI. And now it's one of the thriving undergraduate programs there. Good point. And so I actually think that the biomedical sciences and engineering has, has I wouldn't say it's plateaued by any means. And, and I actually think that it's still growing, whether, yeah, it, it does probably compete with the aerospace as another kind of novel engineering fields, but I do see it, even the biomedical getting even more specialized, such as neuro, right? Yep. Neurotech and stuff. So I actually think it's got a healthy, I think we have a healthy pipeline of folks that are interested in these type technologies. And that and that comes from, we had, a, we had a great group of interns this year and a long line out the door, as you can imagine, to come work for us. And I so I get excited about, I think, what is a still exciting field. And 
and maybe even yet to hit its peak, you know, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think that's a great point, especially with technologies like the ones Synchron's putting together. I think you're starting to like get into popular culture a bit more and, yes, and, and yes, tell yes, an yes, even yes. broader story. <laughs> so you went from uh, Covidian slash Medtronic to Cardinal Health, where you were vice president of marketing for three years. Talk about that transition a bit from, uh, I guess you were doing marketing for neurovascular at Medtronic. So you kind of already made that transition to marketing. So talk about their transition to marketing, but then the decision to leave Medtronic to go to Cardinal Health. And that's a great point is that I did do marketing and it was developing novel technologies and brought, the, brought those technologies globally you know, when I was working with Medtronic and the neurovascular group there. And for me, you know, going to uh, Cardinal Health and really the, the Cordis business within Cardinal Health. So it wasn't necessarily the, what maybe people think of right. Cardinal and the supply side of it, the Cordis business they acquired from Johnson and Johnson. And then that's a very, has a, a rich history in the cardiovascular space and really kind of invented interventional cardiology. And so uh, for me, it was, it was similar from a interventional standpoint, but it also allowed me to kind of manage the P&L, manage the overarching bigger strategy for the organization, uh, for that U.S. business. So for me, it was really starting to manage at scale in a business and, and really try to revitalize that that Cordis business within Cardinal. And then eventually it kind of spun off in private equity, but the Cordis business. But yep. I think that um, for me, it was... Again, trying to work at strategy at a high, you know, at a much higher level. We had already got to number one within the neurovascular, and so it was really trying to revitalize a business and and kind of again put another challenge in front of me. So, how did your engineering background and skill set sort of transition or or serve you well in in marketing? And and do you give that advice to engineers to get into marketing or some other field within medical devices? Because I think it's it's great to be dealing directly with customers and understanding what they need. It probably makes you a better engineer, I would imagine. Yeah, when you when you think about our customer base as med tech um, in the med tech arena, our physicians are you know engineers of the body. Our technologies are, are very high technologies and complex, and the body's complex. So when you look at you know the real the nuggets that that you get to market, if you can really understand the technology and then really extract from the users or the physicians, uh, the surgeons, um, how they use this technology and apply the technology. For me, that's actually what makes the best commercial folks. And, and a lot of times, I talk to engineers about this path. And most of, a lot of times, I, I even hire and you know engineers to come into marketing to apply that type of same creativity and thought and, and scientific approach to the marketing side of it. And so that's something that I've advocated, you know, my whole career around you know engineers that that maybe see beyond the the lab or the the technical piece of you know the, it's really a language that they learn. So once you understand the language of engineering, then then you can apply it to whether it's marketing, business development, quality, you know, all these things really come to fruition. But I think we work in an environment that's, you know, in med device that is extremely technical and understanding that language is, I think, is a, is a huge advantage. Does marketing in medical devices sort of get its due from other departments? Is it seen as just sort of it does just promote what others have done, but but it's an important function marketing. It really is to sort of to really tell the story of a device. You can develop the best device, but you're not able to explain effectively what it does. It's not going to go as far as it could. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think folks that maybe haven't lived through kind of med device or product management kind of look at marketing as, you know, again, advertisement and things like that. Yep. And yes, of course, that, that's a portion of it. But what I like to, and I've kind of preached this again, my career is that product marketing is really the hub of the business. You manage, you're, you're that mini CEO of the business and it's your job to 
find the opportunities within the market, understand the novelties around, say, indoor gaps of technologies in the market, bring together the engineers to solve a problem um, that you may have now discovered from a customer base. And so it's it's really pulling the, the different functions within the, the business, come together, find a solution, and then realize that opportunity in, through the commercial uh, phase of, of product development. And so I, I think it's I think it's really important. And I think it's kind of misinterpreted sometimes what marketing actually does in the business. Oh, that's great points. Well, let's talk about where you are now. Synchron, speaking of marketing, I'm looking at the website right now. And, and I guess it's called the hero statement on the website is the unlocking the natural highways of the brain, the endovascular brain computer interface. I mean, boom, that just sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you come to, to know of Synchron, know of the opportunity and what finally led you to, to make that transition to a, a smaller startup? Yeah, uh, uh, good questions. And so I knew uh, Dr. Tom Oxley from my my travels abroad in Australia and in New Zealand. So I actually met him back in 2014 or 15, I believe. And he was presenting on uh, some of his early benchtop and animal work in that meeting was a very small neurotech meeting that, that was there. And uh, I was presenting on one of our innovations that we were launching in that area. And then we ended up having a few of us went out for, for dinner and you got to chat with him a little bit more and, and I think befriended and saw he had a vision and I thought it was amazing. And it's like, wow, this is really, really different from what I had seen before, which is a little bit like plumbing. Now this is taking plumbing in a, in a whole new realm, right? To understand how we can interpret and understand the signals of the brain. And so years fast forward, I've kept, kind of watched Synchron grow and all of a sudden I I saw that they were in humans out in Australia in the switch trial. And then I saw that they were now in the early feasibility trial here in the United States. And I was like, wow, to go from where he was and then to where we are today took drive and in, in just passion behind, you know, the need for patient helping patients out, but also the technology evolution in itself. And so, you know, but a little over a year ago, I reconnected with Tom just through a colleague of ours, you know, kind of a business contact. And started chatting with them for a little bit. And, you know, we're, we're at a phase in the company where we need to really start to plan for the future. Topics like reimbursement are now kind of on the table and we have to figure out a strategy there. And so him, knowing my background and, and knowing having a, you know, from a development standpoint, engineering, I can still help with those aspects of this, but also now thinking commercially, how do we bring a product like this to market? I think we decided to, okay, hey, let's partner up and, and let's make this happen. And so for me, it was interesting going from, as we talked about, a big company now to a small company. And I, and I kind of, of course, I had to speak to my wife about this, you know, and say, hey, you know, we're, there's always a risk going to a small company, but this is a very, very unique opportunity. And, you know, we have some great people that are part of the team. I got a chance to meet the leadership, um, you know, Ricky Banerjee, you know, uh, you know, our VP of engineering, um, really got along with her. Um, as well as Tom. So I came down and really immediately felt part of the team and knew that this team was going to succeed. And and so uh, for me, it was, I told my wife, like, look, I think there's an opportunity of a lifetime. It's on the front edge of innovation, which really brings me back to my core of what I love to do. And um, so it actually kind of was, it was somewhat of an easy decision, to be honest with you, this move down here. I'm like, I just, I couldn't think of another opportunity that I'd want to be uh, working for right now. So certainly excited to be here. Very cool. So you moved from from Massachusetts down to Synchron's based in in, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, neuro EP again. Go to your website. Neurointerventional electrophysiology is a new field of medical science that combines and elevates three existing areas of research: neuroprosthetics, neuromodulation, and neurodiagnostics. So that's it's a big mission, big charter. 
what is the technology that's going to get you to create products and progress in those three areas? Our first product to market will be the prosthetics, the neuroprosthetic. That's the BCI. So that's probably what's most familiar to the audience as you know, we're competing against you know, some big players out in the market, as you, as you know. But that'll be our first product. But what allows us to play in those other areas, whether it's diagnostics or modulation, is really the, the platform of the stentrode itself. Um, this is a, you know, an endovascular tool that allows it to collect and potentially stimulate from an intravenous intervascular standpoint. And so really that's the, that's the foundation of our, our sensing core competence and our access core competence allows us to, to reach the different parts of the brain and, and potentially again, either collect signals and, and or stimulate out of the, those same areas. And so that's, that's the kind of the platform play in which we're looking at being able to whether it's a short-term understanding brain injury, or when you look at closed-loop systems, when you look at different types of monitoring capabilities, it really starts to open up the door because we're, we're going about this in that minimally invasive endovascular approach. Help me understand first the technology or the device. Where is it being implanted both on the body, but also where within that, that part of the body? This is a, um, it's a pretty straightforward procedure. And the, the beauty of this is that, you know, I actually feel comfortable that at any hospital today that has that type of stroke interventionalist, somebody that does that minimally invasive neurosurgery that they're, they're treating stroke from a mechanical standpoint, has the skill set to be able to do this procedure. And so this procedure is now would say be offered in everyone's backyard. And I think that's a very important point. It doesn't take a robot to place or anything else. And so this, the procedure is a, uh, there's a simple, a small incision, just like they do diagnostic wise in the IJ. So in the, the jugular vein of the, uh, the patient, you then access up through the, the sinus, the transverse sinus and the superior sagittal sinus. So that's the, the veins that run kind of right above the brain itself. Mm. We go up there, which again is a, a very common area that, you know, people do access for different, different means whether it's stenting or whether it's thrombectomy, they do approach this uh, venous system. And it's a fairly large vessel too. So that's the other thing. It's not a tiny little vessel. It's a fairly large vessel that you're putting a, a stent-like structure in. But again, you do a minimally invasive approach. We go and put the, the stentrode up within the superior sagittal sinus. You know, then the lead you know, comes out of the, the vein itself. And then we tunnel that lead down into a little pocket where we put the receiving transmitting unit. So much like a pacemaker, you know, there's like 200,000 pacemakers placed in the US a year. It's the same exact procedure, same skill set that occurs. And so the same, very similar to some of the DBS units itself. And so, you know, there's a little bit of tunneling and then you go down and, and you place within the pocket that receiving and transmitting unit. And at that point, you seal it up, you alleviate having to kind of drill open the skull to get to the brain. You know, it's a, a simple way up and, and uh, a simple placement that is, uh, again, very quick, very straightforward, almost like a, a diagnostics to a point, but you are placing a stent, which is, again, familiar to these physicians. So at that point, it's fully implantable. There's nothing there. The patient does go home after the surgery, and then all the activities happen in the house. So th there's no need to come back to the lab or anything like that. Everything's done in the in the comforts of the home in this early uh, work that we're doing. So that's, like I said, it's, it's a fairly straightforward procedure. And like, I can go there in the morning, we could be doing a, you know, our team can go in there in the morning and we can do some, you know, training and we could do the, the case in the afternoon. And these physicians, again, it's the same muscle memory, the same training that they've had since fellowship that they, you know, same skill set that they learn. And help me understand what is 
being stimulated. You're, you're stimulating something on the vessel wall itself, correct? Is it nerves? Is it some other tissue, connective tissue? What is being stimulated? Uh, so, so great question. So this first system, the neuroprosthetics, does not stimulate at all. Actually, okay. just, just records. When you all think right. of that platform play in the future in that EP world, I think there's opportunity to stimulate out of the same system. But today, there is no stimulus. It, it is purely recording the signals of the motor cortex. And what does that data tell you? When will this be used? What kind of information will you collect? This is a really important question because oftentimes people think, well, you, ha- you, know, you have a chip in the head or you have this type of technology <laughs> and, and you can read my mind and might read my thoughts. Well, it, it, yeah. And so it, it's- You've we're been very, reading my diary. Yeah, no, yeah no. <laughs> exactly. We're, it's, it's very particular on where we put this device over the motor cortex. And really it's, it's reading motor intent. And so when you think about, say, moving your, your hands or wrists or feet, this creates a motor intent signal, which we also, which we then translate into an actionable motor output. And that motor output today is the digital environment, which, you know, again, 30 years ago, um, we would have thought, you know, this is a pretty cool technology, a smartphone, which everybody uses. Now everybody takes it for granted, you know, almost around the world. And so being able to now people that have motor impairment and ha- no longer have the use of their arms there's a real need there. There's a real need there to connect uh, to that digital world. So we translate those motor intent signals, restore that kind of functionality of the motor neurons, and then the output is a, a, in digital format. And so we're able to, again, control that, whether it's kind of scrolling, clicking, zooming, all these functions that you see in a digital environment, we're able to do with those motor intent signals. Okay. Your chief commercial officer, Help me understand the commercial strategy for this going going forward. Who are you going to be able to help you hope initially? What does that product look like? How is it sold? Where is it sold? Yeah, so, you know, this is, um, it, you know, of course, the an indication itself, right? We, we're working with the FDA on that. Sure. Um, you know, we're still wrapping up our early feasibility trial. But if you can envision all the etiologies, all the diseases, whether it's ALS, stroke, spinal cord, all the ones that there's a, the symptom of motor impairment, where again, when you have upper limbs and you can't use your upper limbs to use, you know, again, connect to the digital environment is where we see kind of the audience or, or the patient population is those patients. When you look at the, the rollout of this technology, again, it's a class three medical device. There's no quick path, you know, to, to get to market with an innovation like this. It has to go through, you know, the traditional class three medical device route, like, like we all know from an implantable standpoint. So it's got to go through all the same safety regulations, the performance regulations. So we're going to take that path, partner with the FDA to, to take this to market. The next will be our hopefully pivotal study that we'll be conducting with the FDA and it will go through the PMA route. When you look at commercializing uh, an innovation like this, you know, for me, simplicity is key. I think when you look at the tradition of, um, and, and really the, I would say not the tradition, but the foundation of BCI and all the work that's been done over the last 30, 40 years, the good thing is a lot of these founding researchers and scientists are, are still, you know, still working, you know, and still, and still pushing and understanding how, the, and how to interpret the brain. But there's got to be this translational element. And so one of the things that always becomes very apparent talking to some of these folks is it has to be simple. It has to be out of the box, you know, calibrating these things. It has to be really usable for patients. And that's really where we're centered around. If you think about what that patient needs is something they can rely on all the time, whether it's at night, whether it's kind of on the go in really kind of the out of the box experience as possible. 
So when you look at how do we commercialize this in the future, I think it's one, the surgery still needs to be done in, in a hospital. So there, there is that piece of it. So much like uh, an, any other elective surgery that you go and you get an elective surgery, this will be an elective surgery. Very straightforward from a, from a um, technique standpoint and everything. But you know, working with the persons and or patients, caregivers, their physicians, whether they have a neurologist, you know, it'll kind of go through that same referral pathway to the surgeons they'll be putting in the device. And then they'll go home. And when they go home, you know, there's going to be there's certainly a training element to being able to use a system. But the beauty of, I think, what we've been able to achieve is that from day one, when the system gets activated, they can use it. And so I think that's really something that maybe is different from what we're doing, maybe from others or not. I don't, I'm not sure because I don't preview all the behind the scenes of what goes on with some of our competitors. But, you know, they're in their home and they're using it that first day that gets activated. And so I think that's kind of the, the key point. And so, again, you know, we're going to be held under the same regulations as other medical devices. Sure. We want this to be as comfortable in the home and as simple to use as possible for, for patients, not only patients, but the caregivers are a really key stakeholder in this equation as well. People are, are taking care of their loved ones, for instance, that if they have you know, ALS or these other things. It's and it becomes a huge kind of a weight on their lives as well. So if as we drive a independence, autonomy for that individual, that also creates independence and autonomy for the caregivers so they can live a more fuller life as well. And so that's kind of when you look at where like what type of metrics we're trying to drive to, those are the things that we're really trying to improve uh, when it comes to that environment of the patient and just the, the patient needs in general. Gotcha. A final question, just looking at your website again, which is very nice, by the way. On your news, you've got an article from the Washington Post, and this is kind of the narrative that we're all watching from the outside. The race to beat Elon Musk to put chips in people's brains. Okay. Yes. That's going to click, get some clicks for sure. But what does this race from the inside actually look like? I have to imagine like you're not getting it at 6 a.m. Like it's it's not going to come down to a matter of inches or a matter of minutes. This is an emerging field. I don't know if being first really matters that much, but as one of the contestants or competitors in, in this race, how do you look at this competitive landscape? And, and I guess, how will the winner be judged? Yeah, um, I'll kind of take that question in a few ways. So when you yeah, look please. at, yeah, There's when a lot you look of questions at, in there. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when you when you look at the race and how do we think about you know kind of being first to, to market? What I think about that is it's all about focus, right? So when we come in. As you can imagine, academically, there are a lot of things we can apply our resources to and questions that we can try to go uncover, right? Um, we talked about the other different applications of of this endovascular approach to sensing and, and stimulating. And so I think when you look at focus and understanding, okay, what are the core patient needs that we need to try to go address with this technology? And let's be laser focused and kind of somewhat put blinders on to say, Let's go impact that patient in those needs and drive to uh, you know a system that ultimately becomes a tool that they use every single day. In this space, because of how novelty and how the brain works and all the signals that you can read, you can easily get distracted to doing mm-hmm. different activities and doing different things, controlling robotic arms and doing you know you can do all these things. But ultimately, what they need is a tool they can use every day to be able to reconnect to the world. And so, for me, the race is keeping our team focused and our spend, right? So obviously we're a startup company and so we're, we're privately funded. So keeping that spend focused to driving to a product to market to help ultimately that that need for the patient. So that's the race in my mind is I'm not necessarily racing the competition. I'm racing to help out the patient because we work with them every single week. 
We are in their homes working with them. And the ones that we don't work with, we're talking to because we're wanting to understand what are the needs and what are the, what's that tool and technology ultimately need to look like. So that for us is really how we stay focused and, and think about the kind of the race standpoint. And I welcome competition. So that's that's the other piece. I think the more people that are focused in this area, the much better off patients will be at the end of the day or people that have these impairments and motor impairments. And so I certainly welcome the competition and I think it's all good. But to me, we keep ourselves kind of held to that race and focus to get a product out there to help people as soon as possible. No, that's a, that's a great answer. And you're right. Whenever there's been a Medical device field that's drawn a lot of players. Obviously, not everyone's going to get to the finish line to finish the race thing, but those who are there can then maybe bring in technologies that others developed and, and provide better, even better solutions for for patients. So uh, that's, that's really right. what it's all about. That's right. Excellent. Well, this is an exciting story. I'm really excited to have you at Device Talks West. I'm glad we could give folks sort of a preview of what's going on, what Synchron's about, about your career. So uh, great stuff. Thanks for for joining us on the podcast. Tom, really appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, the talk uh, with Device Talk West. All right, well, that is a wrap. Chris Newmarker, where can folks find you out there in social media land? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Chris Newmarker, like a new marker. Absolutely. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. And uh, Tom Salemi at Device Talks. And uh, well, let's start off with Device Talks West. That's happening October 18th and 19th. You heard the interview from Kurt Hagstrom of Synchron. He'll be there. So if this uh, podcast interview generated some questions or thoughts that you'd like to share, make sure you register at devicetalks.com for Device Talks West. Again, October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Kurt Action will be leaving, leading a presentation about uh, Synchron's brain interface system and uh, very cool stuff. And it's uh, going to yeah. be going to be uh, fascinating to see where this field goes, where this field goes. Boy, having a hard time with the mouth word stuff today. Uh, Shelly sold seashells on the seashore. <laughs> no, thank you. No, but you know, the Synchron, I mean, yeah, Synchron is especially going to be exciting because I mean, it, this is like a cather delivered brain computer interface i mean yep. this whole you know like like you know delivering stents via catheter it's kind of it feels like a very much like a tried and true technology at this point so it's a really interesting strategy to use that uh implant a bci so i'm excited to hear you hear that that talk at a uh, device talks west absolutely and we'll have other neuromodulation neuromodulation conversation as well with folks from kayla and setpoint and cognito <laughs> And a little company called Boston Scientific. So uh, I think I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're up and comers. So, so folks, make sure you join us at Device Talks West. Chris Newmarker, what do we want folks to do regarding this Device Talks podcast network? Get a like, follow, subscribe. That's right. Like, follow, and or subscribe to Device Talk Podcast Network to get Device Talks Weekly, Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, Boston Scientific Talks. Abbott Talks, and we're working on a few other crazy, kooky ideas that we're sure you'll enjoy. So, uh, like, follow Don't worry, it. we won't have new marker talks. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, you, I've got you exclusively tied to the Device Talks go. podcast. We have a five year lucrative contract. That's <laughs> right. You got me your, locked in there. <laughs> keep your audible talents right here on this, on this here podcast. Uh, but yeah, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And of course, uh, Go to devicetalks.com. Check out our Device Talks Tuesdays lineup. We won't have one next week. I'll be at MedTech Vision, the MedTech Vision meeting next week on uh, September 12th. 
a Tuesday. So if uh, you folks are going to be there, please uh, make sure you say hello. Be great to see folks in person. And uh, that's it. All right, Chris Newmarker. Uh, anything? Any any words? Any last words? Take care, anything everyone. Have a good weekend. Uh, that'll do it. All right. All right. Fantastic. Great, <laughs> Enjoy the fall. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.